0: creativity strategist and president of Figure Eight Thinking, where she helps leaders achieve transformative business results by applying creativity and foresight. She is also author of Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work, the editor of Strategic Design Thinking, and regular contributor to Inc. Magazine. Welcome to the show, Natalie.
1: Thank you, Douglas. It's a real joy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So uh, for starters, let's talk a little bit about how you got your start. How, how did you become creativity strategist?
1: <laughs> well, it's been a very loopy journey. I have a background in cultural anthropology and fashion, and I decided many decades ago uh, not to get burdened with trying to narrow myself down. And I actually got that advice as a teenager. I, I used to be really into radio and I volunteered on early Sunday mornings on a local AM radio show just to kind of help out um, behind the scenes. And the woman, i so so sorry, I'm forgetting actually not her name. That's horrible. But um, she was asking me I was getting close to graduate high school, and what did I think I want to do? And she looked at me and she said, You know, the older you get, the more people are going to try to narrow you down. But if that's not your thing, don't be narrowed down by that. Follow your heart, follow what what you what interests you. And combined with that, i have I have amazing parents. Um, my parents, my sophomore year in college fast forward. I was very nervous about what my major was going to be. I wanted to make sure I got a good job at the end of a very wonderful and expensive education. And I called home in tears because I didn't know what to decide on because all of the impressive sounding majors where I thought you could get a good J-O-B at the end, um, I was either failing or I thought they were really boring. And my parents said, well, what are you interested in? And so I apologetically began to explain how much I loved anthropology and all these cool multi uh, interdisciplinary Africana studies courses. And almost at the same time, they said, that's what you should major. That's what you should study. And I was like, really, you'll be okay with that. And they're like, yep, that's what you should study. And my father said, if you follow your heart, if you study what you love, you'll have to turn away opportunities. And it was just huge load that was lifted off my shoulders. And this just wonderful permission to follow my heart. And That is something I have been steadfast about my entire life, my entire, most of my life, (laughs) and my entire career. And so that loopy background in cultural anthropology and fashion has been super useful in the work that I do today as a creativity strategist. Um, There was a chapter in my career where I was a professor for 16 Mm -hmm. years, and uh, the last six years of that time, I created and launched the Strategic Design MBA program, and it was very multidisciplinary and really an attempt to creatively disrupt graduate business education. We integrated design thinking into the way people were learning strategy and leadership and financial operations and branding. And I actually started Figure Eight Thinking, my company today, um, while I was still a professor, It was my side hustle. Mm. I gave a TEDx Philadelphia talk in 2014. And after giving that talk, I was invited into a lot of companies to to share out and workshop with them what my talk was about, which was basically the future of work is jazz. And in my view, the most innovative organizations are improvisational. So, you know, what's really cool about where I am in my work and life right now is that all of the divergent, disparate paths, especially from someone from the outside looking in on me didn't make sense to them, totally made sense to me because I was just following my heart, which by the way, is just a lot of courage. It's not easy to do, but the more we do it, the, the easier it becomes. Um, I'm at this really magical, amazing moment in my life and my career where all of those super diverse experiences and sets I've developed come in handy as a creativity strategist. So as a creativity strategist, I made up the term by the way, I'd never met a creativity strategist, but when I thought about what I really love and what I'm good at, that's what I decided I am. I, in my practice at Figure Eight Thinking, I help leaders and executive leadership teams and, and people to get to transformation, transforming their businesses. Sometimes, a lot, lately I've been doing a lot more coaching and it's 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 transformation in their lives to make shifts, by applying principles and techniques from creativity and from foresight. And I love it.
0: So much cool stuff there. And the, 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 maybe the most recent connection that I made when I was listening to you, and clearly passionate about what you do, by the way, and that's infectious. So I love that. And but you mentioned not being tied down by one thing. And I just had Sarah Beth Burke on my show And she has a book called More Than Your Title. And Mm. she had come up with this concept of the hybrid professional. So uh, carving out these identities that are unique and that you can own. I just love that. I. Connected with Sarah Beth on this level of I kind of felt like I myself was a hybrid professional and had gravitated toward it and, and then here you are as well. <laughs> like you know, I think people are finding their way there and she's helping people that aren't realizing it. But
1: I, I love that. I'm glad that she's doing that. You know what's funny? The the moniker for the strategic design MBA program was the MBA for hybrid thinkers. It mm. was kind of, we were promoted as the best of design school meets the best of business school. So I, um, I am also a hybrid thinker. I think most of us are really, but it gets drummed out of us in our educational pathways. And, well, and the
0: models that we learn and we and we get comfortable with also impact how we see the world.
1: That's right. That's right. I, one of the, the creativity leaps I encourage people to make is away from erring on the side of of being a deep specialist to being Mm. a polymath, Mm
0: -hmm. like
1: Leonardo da Vinci, you know, who was a mathematician and an artist and an astronomer. And, you know, and my mom told us when we were really young, all learning is interconnected. And that's what you see that polymaths really get and understand that something they learn in the sciences is really going to form the way they understand history is really going to understand the way they understand carpentry and et cetera, et cetera.
0: You know, it's as a facilitator, I often think back to the moments in my early career where I was sitting in the room listening to two people who were in the heat of an argument and thinking to myself that you're saying the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's where the polymaths, these hybrid thinkers, that's the, the, a real strength, right? They can see past the veneer. Yes. Because they can see those deeper connections.
1: Right. They, you, When you decide to be okay with being a hybrid and having these multiple interests, you really are honing your ability to be a systems thinker, a systems designer. You know, it was only about five months ago that I realized that Studying Africana studies was really, and this was 35 plus years ago, that was my first foray into systems design and systems thinking. Mm. And it wasn't equipped with the language or the lens to understand it as such back then. But now, I mean, that's the value of that training of, of ways to understand problems and the interconnection between things because we were studying people of African descent throughout the diaspora around the world. And so you really were getting to, into understanding things as networks and nodes and the cascading effects when, when something over here in the system shifts, how that has a, an effect in all other dimensions of the system. And that came from one of my majors being so, I don't know if the right word be multidisciplinary, or interdisciplinary, felt very uh, interdisciplinary. But yeah, that's something I only was able to articulate as such only like a few months ago.
0: I was just working with a client recently, and they were they were debating whether or not interdisciplinary was too restrictive and that they should refer to themselves as transdisciplinary. Yes,
1: that's a good one. <laughs> yeah,
0: I was looking at this chart, and I was like, oh yeah, that does make sense. You got multi-interdisciplinary and then transdisciplinary is where right. you're looking at all the, the interconnectedness between them and more of the holistic kind of systems.
1: Yeah, transdisciplinary probably is a bit more accurate
0: yeah so i also love this moment that you shared about the just that unburdening that happened when you were you had these notions that there was a way to move through the world and you know a a trusted advisor told you no it doesn't have to be this way and i think that if more leaders were to treat their employees that way yeah. and and we brought together teams that help them understand that like there's many ways to carve out the road in front of them. Uh, We'd see a lot more innovation.
1: We'd see a lot more innovation. I think we'd see a lot more productivity because in my view, we are basically having to show up to work each day and drag. (laughs) It's like (laughs) Natalie's greatest hits, best of, and you know, no one really gets to see, like, I just got back from, my social ballroom dance classes, mask on because this is still COVID quarantine, But mm-hmm. it, you know, today I was I was practicing the Roomba and uh, West Coast swing, and you know, there are so many dimensions of people we work around every day that we have no idea what makes them tick, what what is actually informing the way they understand the marketing strategy or the financial model or or the sales pitch that if we invited them to share those other sides of themselves, then they'd be a lot happier. They'd be a lot they they, they wouldn't it, it takes it takes work disguising parts of yourself. You know, it, it takes work trying to put on whatever, you know, fill in the blank the facade is that seems to pass as as appropriate. I believe that, you know, what if the KPIs and organizations, the the key performance indicators, also included elements of creativity in the way I think about creativity, if it included how wondrous you are, how how you really are applying rigor to, to things and, and not rigidity, but rigor, and given the time to do that, and, and and how you ask better and different questions and how you really lean into improvising and being adaptive and it would be hard at first because it would be such a a culture shift for people to be like really that's what you want me to do it's okay i won't be penalized but ultimately it would be inviting people to relax a bit to share more of uh, their full human selves
0: i love that I was thinking in my head as you were wrapping up, it's like we're letting them be more human and then you said share more of their human selves. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've been talking about a lot for a while around I have this belief that with the onslaught of AI Mm -hmm. and automation, there's going to be tons of things that computers continue to do better than we do. And especially when you think about the rote kind of redundant, just repetitive stuff, they're going to take on more and more and more of that stuff, even the complicated and complex versions of that And we're going to have to show up more and more as humans. So what you're speaking about right there is going to be even more important as time goes on.
1: To me, that's the silver lining of this fourth industrial revolution. You're Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, Douglas, that there's going to be more room for the human to show up. But are we prepared for that? Because, yeah, task-related stuff, the robots have it. The algorithms have got it down. So the organizations that are first to invite, make space for, hire for, incentivize more of the human to show up, they're, they're going to be the organizations that attract the best talent and, and, and retain people in more interesting ways.
0: So let's talk a little bit about how that manifests. And you mentioned something a moment ago that caught my ear because it's one of my favorite topics, and that's questions. Mm-hmm. So how do we get asked questions, and what are some of your favorites?
1: Well, I have been deeply influenced by the work of Warren Berger, who wrote mm. a more beautiful question. I also, probably because Warren in his book referenced Ian Leslie. Ian Leslie wrote a great book called Curious. And Ian explains that you know curiosity is the product of an information gap. You need to know just a little bit about something to want to know more. And we see that in toddlers, right? They touch something, they taste something, they bump into something, they see something, they hear something, and all of a sudden they, they, they want to understand and learn a little bit more. And so I define creativity, I think about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And the way we can get better at that toggling, the way we can get better at exercising our creativity is through what I call the three eyes. And the three eyes are inquiry, improvisation and intuition. And that inquiry piece is super important. I was just saying to someone earlier today, you know, nothing bad ever follows the phrase. I wonder if, I wonder what would happen. <laughs> like, like not really nothing bad ever follows that phrase. It always leads to exploration, discovery, experimentation. And somewhere along the way, we are penalized for asking questions and obviously when you ask a question you don't know the answer obviously you're admitting ignorance but so what it's it's really the beginning of identifying something new and so what warren berger found in his research is that the most innovative companies practice inquiry-based leadership they ask questions of themselves they encourage questions from their teams and he has a really beautiful heuristic, which is that they start with asking why, like, like, why do we only hire people from those sorts of schools? Why? Why do we uh, only have anyone here over age 50? Why? Why, you know, why don't we ever sell to the Southern Hemisphere? And then, then they diverge even further to what if? What if we started, you know, recruiting people who have maybe a high school diploma and rich professional experience. And what if we we started selling our stuff to Brazil, the Brazilian market? And, and then it converges into how questions. So how might we do that? Mm-hmm. And it's just a really, the first time I started reading Warren Berger's work was when I was a professor heading up the Strategic Design MBA program. And what I was first attracted about that series of question asking is that it was really aligned to design thinking Mm -hmm. a a design thinking process of being very doing a lot of divergent convergent thinking so curiosity is everything and so yeah some of my favorite questions are i wonder if fill in the blank and i just posed a question i actually think it comes from the second book from Warren Berger, which i have is called it's called the book of beautiful questions And there's a great mm. question in there. What would I do if failure was not an option? Like, what, what would I do if I knew for certainty, like, this won't fail? Like, what? like what? So you put failure off the table. What would you then try? What would you go for? And I think it's just such a, a titillating question. It's, it's a really good one. What are some of your favorite questions?
0: Oh, gosh. <laughs> As a facilitator, maybe one of my favorites is, why don't we just do that?
1: Mm. <laughs> good
0: one anytime i can i I love getting the group talking you know like so anytime i can pose a question that just like gets people i don't know even who haven't we heard from love Mm -hmm. that one because especially dealing with an overtalker i don't really have to point them out i don't have to call (laughs) on the the people who aren't being as as included and then maybe the other thing is there's another great question for a facilitator which is why am i talking Mm. (laughs)
1: So you um, like what I'm writing these down. These are good. Why did we just do that? And who haven't we heard from? I like those.
0: Yeah, they're fun ones. And, you know, I, I stumbled on, as it's been a while now, but D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, has a facilitation guide with it. And some really amazing questions. One of the things I picked up from her was, um, what did you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Which, like, depends on the tone you use. But mm-hmm. if you're gracious with that question... It can be a really soft out for someone who said something that didn't consider the impact of what they were saying. And they might um, said something very offensive without intent, but as we know, intent does not matter. And so what do you mean by that? And then if they have to explain it, <laughs> then they, they start backing away from it really quick and it can create a safer place for everyone.
1: You bring up a really good point about tonality, delivery, eye contact if possible, body language. So like, what is this? Like 70% of what we communicate is through our body language. I have a couple of I just want to share real quick. So I sure. love Esther Perel, the psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. I have a professional crush on her. She's just so brilliant. And she, um, I listened to her podcast, which is called Where Should We Begin? But one of, one of the questions that she Poses regularly, and sometimes she she poses it as a directive, in some as as a declarative statement. Sometimes she poses it as a as an interrogative statement, or interrogative and and and, and it is um say more. You know, (laughs) like the person just said something that and that's like really loud. So so say more, and it's and it's just so simple, and it just invites people to to say more, and the other four set of questions. I, I, I shared this next one, especially with, I started an online creativity, a group coaching online creativity course. And I shared how when we decide to make creativity leaps, these are major mind trips. Like you have to fortify your brain. And so um, one of the people, one of the person who I consider a, she's a distant teacher. I've never met her, but I, I've learned so much from her is Byron Katie. And so she's done something called The Work, and there are four questions. And so the four questions are, is that true? (laughs) Is that really true? (laughs) What are you experiencing with that thought? Like, how are you feeling physically, emotionally, all that? And what would you be without that thought? Which is right? That's the best one. What would you be without that thought?
0: Nice. Yeah, I really love this idea of challenging people's mindsets or thinking patterns. You know, what sorts of frameworks are they bringing to the situation that may be incongruent with everyone else? So I, I love these lateral thinking stuff. So saying, if you were to remove that, what would I mean? What would surface for you? That's that's really cool.
1: And the frameworks are stories. Hmm a story is a friend it's, it's stories that we've been telling ourselves and you get to interrupt the story you actually can Ooh. interrupt it that's that's a that's another esther perel gem
0: <laughs> yeah i like that yeah
1: she's another one she oh gosh you're so she she's so wise there's another one she says um um are you ready to have a revolution with your mind
0: mm, yeah i think so maybe that sounds like a great <laughs> wednesday afternoon <laughs> I want to come back to your point a moment ago about eye contact and, you know, and tonality and it's something we were talking about, uh, it surfaced this point of our pre-show chat that I wanted to also kind of stitch together, which was this notion of equitable distribution. And, and so when we think about the tools, you know, we, we both have good sounding mics, we have headphones, we have solid internet cause I haven't seen any issues here, I and mean, when we're bringing together folks for creative collaborations in this time of covid it can you know equity is a real challenge when we think about supporting everyone's needs
1: yes absolutely and before i get into the equity piece around meeting meeting up connecting during a time dur- during Remember that book, Love in the Time of Cholera. Someone read a book, Love in the Time of COVID. Maybe someone already has. About tonality and physicality. I, I'm just I'm I'm very conscientious about kinesthetic learning and mm. making and moving in order to understand and how we embody learning. How sometimes we don't we're not even aware what, why we're terrified to do something and we we have to be conscious of how we're stiffening up or how they are feeling queasy in our stomach and like what was that first experience that that were that way of reacting helped us and now may not be so helpful it's more of a barrier but being very conscientious about movement comes from my background studying dance i studied dance since i was four years old so i you know even i mentioned earlier in our conversation about being at ballroom dance class earlier today it's some of the most joyous moments in my week is being a dance class. There are moments literally when I'm in class, either in my my private lesson with my instructor or in a group class where I, I remember myself as five years old, like excited, like, okay, when do I get to try it? When do I get to do (laughs) it? And, And being so happy to be moving and, and, and communicating in that way. So I just wanted to, 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 to mention that. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right that we have to have a conscientiousness about equity or lack thereof when we're talking about meeting and connection in this virtual environment. I like to watch 60 Minutes on Sunday nights because it's very nostalgic for me. Just that like tick, 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 like that's <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: you know, that sound, the oh, introduction. Yeah. It reminds me of when I was much, much younger. And and sometimes on a Sunday night, I just wanna hear the tick, 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 and see who they're interviewing. And last Sunday, they were looking at the city of Tampa, Florida. And in Tampa, Mm -hmm. Florida, because of the repercussions of COVID, 7,000 children did not show up for school. And they followed the social worker and her team as she went from home to home, motel to motel, grandma's house to grandma's house, to figure out where these little kids were. And one of these reported at the end of the, of the segment was that actually they had connected and identified all but 700 kids, which is amazing to me that they got, they were able to, to figure all that out. But one of the children they interviewed was, was a teenage girl, about 15 or 16 years old. When they tracked her down, she was living in a motel room with her dad, her mom, her sibling. And they the interviewer with journalist was asking, so how's it coming along with your work? How are you doing your work? She said, Oh, it's it's fine, it's fine. And so I'll sit outside on the on the on the stairwell and I'll do my work that way. And the journalist said, Well, what, what are you using to do your work? And she said, Oh, my phone. So she's using her phone to like read a history lesson and try to figure out algebra or geometry or whatever they're they're learning at that point. And then she said, Well, sometimes I'll take a walk. And then the, the journalist said, "Well, it, it must be hard. There's so many people around." She says, "Yes, it, it can be hard, but you know, I'll 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 take a walk about a mile down the road to a park." But then the journalist was like talking over the segment, saying, "But at the park, there's like no Wi-Fi, so she has peace and quiet, but she doesn't have Wi-Fi." And if we don't factor in issues around equity, around access, uh, the fallout. Of the people who've been left behind, because we don't, for a number of reasons, we don't have systemic structural support for for people who who are not at an advantage just out the gate. It's going to affect all of us. You know, th- this idea that we can't split up the pie differently because I'll get a smaller slice. No, equity is not about making sure we divide up the current pie differently the equity is about expanding the size of the pie so that everyone benefits and there i borrow a lot from the principles of universal design universal design is about designing for people who are differently able so like the oxo uh kitchen utensils you know that's an example of universal design where the designer's wife had horribly arthritic hands, and so he made the spongy handles for the spatula and the whisk so that it would be comfortable for her. Well, it turns out that when you design for people who are differently able, it's actually better designed for everybody. Everybody loves OXO Kitchen Tools. So this idea about you know designing for the least amongst us actually raises the playing field for everybody. And we see that in, you know, The microfinance examples out of Bangladesh, the gentleman the economist who who won a Nobel Peace Prize, where it turns out there are models from understanding how to provide access for emerging entrepreneurs who don't look like folks in Silicon Valley, who are brown women in, in Southeast Asia from rural villages. That actually is a model for economic development that can be scaled that also, you know, the the Tata car in India. You know, mm. I lived in Sri Lanka, uh, making bras and panties for Victoria's Secret brand. It's an amazing chapter of my life. And, you know, it's common in Colombo to see a family of five on a scooter, no helmets. Mm. Wow. You know, little baby, toddler up front in front of mom, two little kids smushed between mom and dad. And, you know, they're jamming, they're, they're going about their day. And countries like Sri Lanka, India set this could be a big problem if there's a lot of uh, motor motor accidents on on the road so how 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 could we design how could we how could we lean engineer a, a car that would address the needs of this emerging middle class and really strip down an affordable car that's safe and that you know has some bit of a covering that that might that might for all intents and purposes be like a scooter with the you know the metal structure outside i'm i'm over exaggerating but mm. It turns out that that automotive design is of interest to, to Daimler, Chrysler and to other major automotive companies. So when we design for the least amongst us, when we realize that we are all interconnected and that we must provide equitable solutions during this time of COVID, it, it raises the bar, it raises the, uh, the opportunity and the quality of life for everybody. For me, it's, it's, you know, it's take your medicine now or take it later. But we got to mm-hmm. deal with this. Otherwise, we'll take our medicine later.
0: That's fantastic. You know, I was thinking you're saying that, you know, it's not a matter of just a smaller piece. It's like the pie is getting bigger, but it also tastes better, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> tastes a lot better.
0: Yeah. So, I want to come back to your uh, your MBA and I always like to ask people about a meeting or a gathering that they were a part of or they designed that they thought was more magical than normal and you know, if nothing else comes to mind, I am curious about the workshops you ran for the future of work as jazz. Like how did how did <laughs> you bring those concepts to people in a way that was engaging and and memorable?
1: Well, I, you know, the meaning that did come from mine is I, I, you know, the, the the Strategic Design MBA program attracted some really remarkable, amazing people, a lot of whom I'm I'm still in touch with and connected with, a lot of the alums I, I still am in touch with. And it was, it was a very boutique program. I mean, I'm in Philly. I'm in the shadows of Wharton, you know, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. <laughs> and they're like, design what? <laughs> I mean, that's not completely fair. They, they've started to embrace design thinking and human-centered innovation, but... You know, I felt like a David in a sea of Goliaths um, most of the time. And I, I wanted to always create a very special exit for, for, for our graduate students. So we would have these, these final dinners. And um, I bit off of something that NPR does. NPR has um, they've often done stories about you know your 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 life in three songs. So I would always ask everyone to send me what's your life in three songs. So the playlist at dinner was um, you know people's people's magical songs. People say whose song is that? Oh, why did you pick that one? And so it was always this wonderful conversation and. And I had so many amazing colleagues in the city of Philadelphia who would gift their space, really cool spaces and say, "Sure, you can have the dinner here and And I worked with a really cool dude named Ben Walmer, who is is this he's this interesting background in farming and engineering and design. And he had this incredible uh he his, I think at the end of his company was high highland Highland dinner Highlands Dinner club. It was basically. Dinner part, this mobile dinner party, and he would have scavenger hunt clues, and that you'd end up in the in a in a little bit of the woods somewhere, and he would always curate these amazing locally sourced uh, meals. So those that that to me is an example of a meeting that was a, that was a, a convening, a gathering that um, became a bit of a ritual. For the program, and um, it was I I wanted them to know that I thought they were special, and I wanted to give them a special sending off that would be memorable. And I was thanking them for taking the chance with me because they took a chance to 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 get an MBA, a strategic design MBA program, and 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 in exchange, I you know they told me the, the program changed their lives. They they shared that that they shifted to a different trajectory. And even if it wasn't overtly a, a different trajectory, it, it, mindset shifts. So that's an example of um, really memorable meetings and convenings.
0: That's fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And I, I'm i really inspired to go create wonder and maybe be a little more rigorous about it. So thank you for all the words. And I just want to give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought.
1: Well, I guess my final thought is, first, if if you're so moved, definitely check out what I'm up to at figure8thinking.com. And if you're curious about the Creativity Leap, you can download a free sample chapter on the websites, the top banner. And um, something I posted on Instagram this week, it was kind of an extension out of um, coming out of Thanksgiving time. Um, I I, I I posted. I post a lot of little quotes from my book and just what's top of mind for me. And I posted that gratitude is the gateway to wonder. And so, you know, Douglas, you and I are talking just after Thanksgiving. It's the first week of December. And sometimes it can be really hard to figure out what we're grateful for during such a really challenging time like Covid. But if you do a thought experiment of just observing, five to 10 objects in your immediate surroundings and think about the people unknown to you who are responsible for making that thing come to be or because of that thing that reminds you of that trip you had and then the people you met. Um, gratitude is the gateway to wonder and wonder is something that we really need to indulge in uh, more than ever. So that, that's, that's a thought I would leave people with that, that gratitude is the gateway to wonder.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show, Natalie, and hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Thank you, Douglas.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And If you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.